I know all of you are up to speed on this. Last week, social media was in an uproar. Y'all know that, right? Al, you know that. You're, you're, you're right on social media all the time. All the time. Social media was in a huge uproar last week. I, I saw it on the news. I saw a news story reporting that social media was in an uproar over The Bachelorette. Are y'all familiar with The Bachelorette, the TV show? The ba- I don't watch The Bachelorette, but, it, but I found out how social media is in an uproar over The Bachelorette. And, of course, I had to find out what's the uproar. And so uh, they, they showed a little clip of it. I then went on, on the Internet because if it's on the Internet, we know that it, it's got to be true. So, so on the Internet, I found out that The Bachelorette for, I think, this season, her name is Hannah Brown. Uh, was uh, the, 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 the Bachelorette, and then one of the contestants on the show, Luke P., is how he's identified. And, and, and if you don't know, the show is, is the Bachelorette, and she has like 50 or 40 or so many guys trying to win her hand, and they do the rose ceremony back and forth, and she, little by little, she whittles it down, and at a certain point, the Bachelorette identifies the, the top four, the four finalists. And with each of the four finalists, she spends the night in the fantasy suite. And so here's where the controversy erupted on social media. Uh, she sent Luke P. home. He was one of the four finalists, I think. She sent him home over the topic of sex. And uh, the, 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 uh, as they showed on the video clip from the show, Luke says to Hannah, I don't think that's something you should be doing. I want to make sure that you're not going to be sexually intimate with the others. Hannah replied, This is a quote. I'm a grown woman. I can make my own decisions. I'm not strapped to any man right now. I don't owe you anything. And the way this is framed is Luke P. was expressing his Christian values. And Hannah, in response, says to Luke P., I've had sex and Jesus still loves me. Now, last week, we talked about in here, uh, as we continue to look at the topic of faith in the real world, we talked about last week, in here, how David, who we're looking at, his life story, uh, and picking some key episodes to help us understand how we can learn valuable life lessons from his example. Last week we saw David, after killing Goliath, became a celebrity. And uh, in becoming a celebrity, David had to learn and deal with success in the moment, and God helped him and equipped him to do that. Today we're looking at David again, not early in his life when he killed Goliath, but this is now later in his life, when he had been a king, when he had experienced God's hand upon him, and, uh, and, and when he had, uh, uh, had followed God and was known as a man after God's own heart. But today we're going to deal with confronting moral failures, dealing with moral failures that take place in our lives. David, the Bible records, committed adultery with the wife of another man, and then had the other man killed. That sounds like, that sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? It sounds like a, a movie that might be a, a bestseller. It sounds like something that, that The Bachelorette might be going through on the, on the TV show, any number of things. But, but the reality is that, that in God's Word, uh, and we should be so thankful for this, because when we look at having a faith and exhibiting a faith in the real world, we need to be reminded we live in a real world that is a sexual world. I, you know, somebody might say, why do we talk about that in church? Well, the Bible talks about it. The Bible talks about it. And our culture is talking about it. And if our culture doesn't hear it from us, guess who they're hearing it from? The Bachelorette and everybody else out there on TV. We need to make sure we share God's purpose and plan and values 
over the topic of sexual intimacy. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the man who exhibited such great success. The David, the man who's the, the model king of Israel, actually was guilty of a moral failure with another man's wife and then had the other man killed. Now David, at this stage of his life, he's older. He's older. He, he should know better. Doesn't it surprise you when people who should know better do things they shouldn't do? He should have been stronger. David had experienced the hand of God in so many ways up to this point in his life. He knew what was right and what was wrong, and yet he did what was wrong anyway. David, the man after God's own heart, is a lot like you and I, and a lot like people in the world. Having experienced God's hand in so many ways, why fail now is the question. According to a ministry called All Pro Dad, the question is asked, why do men cheat? Four reasons are given. Number one, unfulfilled emotional needs. Most men say when they're caught cheating, most men will say, why, when, when asked, why did you do it? They say something along the lines of, my emotional needs were not being met in my marriage. And so men who cheat consistently express feeling disconnected from their wives. The answer to that, according to all pro dads, and they're right on track, by the way, they say, work tirelessly to connect with your wife. If the issue is you're disconnected from your wife, don't find another woman. Connect with your wife. I thought I'd get amen in there. Thank you, Gene. Amen. <laughs> Take charge and keep it, keep it alive, man. It's, it's our responsibility. Secondly, why do men cheat? The second reason, the thrill. Many men love the chase. The chase, the conquest, the, 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 once the pursuit is over, the, their interest seems to, to wane, even with their wife. It's said, the answer to that is this, according to All Pro Dad, the greatest and most challenging test for any man is to romance and pursue the same woman for a lifetime. Amen, guys? That's our challenge. And that's our challenge, to, to continually seek to, to win and to woo the wives that we have been married to, whether it's for a year or a decade or a lifetime. The third reason men give for uh, cheating on their wives is distraction. The man wants a distraction from all the, all the responsibilities and all the pressures that come in life and in marriage. Well, here's the answer. Embrace your responsibilities or you'll lose them. You're tired of them? You might just lose it. Then you realize what you've lost. According to All Pro Dad, the fourth reason men give for cheating on their wives is sexual addiction. Having pursued and constantly been engrossed in sexual addiction and all the negative outcomes that come personally in their marriage, in their families, and all the things, they can't make themselves stop. And the answer from all pro dads is get help immediately. There is good help out there for that. Well, the question, why do some men have such a hard time finishing well? after getting off to a good start. Recently in the news, I mean a couple of years ago, a pastor in Coral Ridge, Florida, Tullian, I'll say, try to say this right, Chevikian. You may have heard of him before. He's Billy Graham's grandson. He was a pastor in uh, a Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida. He resigned after being caught in an affair. In January the 3rd of this year, he was giving an interview. And here's what he said to the Christian Post. It's extremely uncomfortable admitting that stuff in front of a group of people. When I talk about the hurt I caused my family, my friends, my church, and countless others, now listen to this part, 
because I was too full of myself to care about anyone more than me. I thought that is such a telling confession from a man who had been caught. I was too full of myself to care about anyone more than me. He cared about himself more than he cared about his spouse. He cared about himself more than he cared about the person with whom he was having an affair and that person's husband. He cared about himself more than the damage it would do to his children and to his grandchildren and to his family and to his reputation and to his ministry and the damage it would do between him and God. He cared more about himself. I, I want to finish well. Can I just tell you that this morning? I want to finish well. God wants me to finish well. God wants you to finish well. God wants our young people to finish well. God wants us to start well. He wants us to stay well. And He wants us to finish well. Anybody agree with me this morning? That's what God wants. And here's the beautiful news. If we have been guilty of stepping outside of our marriage or outside of God's purpose and outside of God's plan, that's why God sent His Son. Because we all, every one of us in some area or another, we all have stepped outside of God's purpose and plan. We all need a Savior, and that's why Jesus came into the world. Well, we live in a time in America of what I'm calling the sexualization of America. Our culture expects and celebrates and rewards those who act in sexual ways outside of God's purpose and plan. Have you noticed that on TV? Have you noticed that out in the culture? Have you noticed that on social media? Have you noticed that in the movies? Have you noticed that in just about every format out there that, that our culture expects and celebrates and rewards those who step outside of God's purpose and plan? And likewise, our culture criticizes and punishes those who stand for biblical moral values. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Just the fact that you disagree brings criticism. The church must be a voice for biblical moral values. Amen. There's what we do and there's how we do it. We have to always be mindful of that. What the world does not need from the church is a finger of judgment pointed into their chest and thumping uh, with, with condemnation, arrogance, and criticism. What the world needs is the truth. The truth lived out the truth shared with love and compassion and the truth that God has a purpose and a plan and that God is a God of love, but He's also a God of judgment. Today we're looking at 2 Samuel 11. I'll invite you to take your Bible and turn there, 2 Samuel 11. We're going to explore David's moral failure and we're going to gain some lessons. We're going to ask the question, how can I avoid moral failure? How can I, how can you, how can we together, how can we avoid getting trapped in a time of moral failure? Let me just give you a couple of points this morning if I can. The first is this, stay away from tempting circumstances. If you want to avoid moral failure, stay away from the temptation to go towards moral failure. You, you, the, 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 in Proverbs, it talks about the, the foolish man who wanders down the street looking for the woman who has uh, immorality on her mind. And it says, he just happens to show up at her. How did I get here? I have no clue how I got here. Oh, there she is. I don't know how I got here. Stay away from tempting circumstances. Notice 
The first way to do that is to avoid inappropriate places. Avoid inappropriate places. Avoid unoccupied time. Avoid being where you're not supposed to be and stay where you are supposed to be. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, it says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. This verse is a very important verse. David stayed at Jerusalem and sent his general out with the army during the season of the year that the king took his army out to battle. The king often, if not always, led the troops out into battle. Now, he wasn't at the forefront of the fighting necessarily, but the king was there. He was in authority. He was making decisions. He was the prominent one. He was the one to whom the soldiers looked, and David decided, I'm not going out there. David, the great warrior king. You remember, he killed Goliath. He led the, the, the thousand. He led the troops of, of Israel. And now that he's the king and had been in all these military campaigns for some reason, and we're not told, he stayed behind at Jerusalem. And it's important to note there at the end of verse 1 where it says, but David remained at Jerusalem. There's a hint here by the writer here in 2 Samuel. There's a hint that, that David staying in Jerusalem is part of the problem. David was not where he was supposed to be he was where he was not supposed to be. He was not supposed to be at the palace. He was supposed to be out with the troops. Sometimes we can be in a safe place, but it's the wrong time to be at the safe place. And that's what was happening with David. So, so if you want to stay away from temptation, stay away from inappropriate places. Secondly, avoid inappropriate views. Avoid seeing things that you shouldn't ought to see. Notice verse 2. It happened. That's like the way it starts. It happened. This, this whole story happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. Now, now understand this. It makes perfect sense. I'm, I hope that, that in, in a city back in those days, especially in the city of Jerusalem, the, the highest point of the city was the most important point of the city, and that's where the king's palace was, so that when David walked out on the porch and he's just kind of gazing out around what's going on, he could see everything else in the city because he was at the highest point. And he could look out over the rooftops, the rooftops which were flat, the rooftops on which much of life happened. They would eat on the rooftops. They would build little shelters and sleep on the rooftops. Oftentimes in the, in the summertime especially, it would be cooler on the rooftops. So, so it's, it's not like that only one person ever went up on their roof. It, it's very common for people to go up on the roof for coolness and for fellowship and for an extra family space. So that's what he was doing. He, he was uh, walking on the roof of the king's house. Verse 2, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. Now, ladies, let me ask you this question. If your husband is walking around on a roof and he happens to notice that on another roof there is a woman bathing. Now, first of all, let's all agree, you can't help what you happen to see when you happen to see it. Isn't that right? You can't always control what you see. But you do control what you look at. He saw a woman bathing. Can't help that. That's what was happening. And the woman was very beautiful. Well, how did he know the woman was very beautiful if he was just kind of passing a glance, over, passing over what he couldn't help but see? That word saw, when he saw a woman from the roof, that word saw means, uh, we saw two things. One, she was bathing. Second, she was beautiful. And the Hebrew word for see there means to observe, 
to examine and to get acquainted with. It's not a casual glance. A casual glance, again, nobody can be held responsible for a casual glance. Somebody walking by, something you see on the road, uh, something that comes across the TV screen uh, when you're watching something appropriate. You just can't help what you happen to glance at, but you have every control over what you get acquainted with. David, from his perch there on the king's palace, got acquainted with the beauty of the woman taking a bath. Verse 3, And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one of them said, Is, is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You've got to watch what we're looking at, guys, and ladies too. We've got to watch what we're looking at, what we're studying, what we're spending time with. Thirdly, you have to avoid inappropriate actions. There are places we shouldn't go, there are things we shouldn't see, and there are certain things we shouldn't do. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. Now, now here's one commentator said, well, you know, in, in disguising this and making it look like everything was appropriate, David sent somebody to Bathsheba. He sees the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. We'll discover in a moment. He's one of the soldiers in David's army. So, so under the guise of checking on the troops... He sends some messengers. Hey, come, the king has summoned you so that you can report anything you've heard about how the troops are doing. He makes it look all legitimate up front. That's what, that's what David does. So, so she came to him, and it says there very succinctly, very plainly, very veiled but clear, and he lay with her. He lay with her. He had relations with her. And then she returned to her house. All good. No harm. Two consenting adults, everything is great, nobody knows, nobody gets hurt. Isn't that what we hear? Two consenting adults and nobody else has to know about it. And as long as nobody gets hurt, everything is fine. The only problem is nobody never gets hurt. Did I say that right? There's never a time that nobody gets hurt. Let's define adultery. Adultery is, let me give you several issues about adultery. One is, adultery is a physical issue. It's sexual relations between two people who are not married to each other, man and woman. Exodus 20, verse 14, part of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. This is between two people that are unmarried, two people that are pre-married, two people that are married but not to each other, two people, you name it, anything other than a man and a woman married to each other is defined as adultery. It's a physical issue, but it's also a heart issue. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28. He said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, man, I can't, I, now I can't, what, what, you know, you don't just have to, it doesn't have to just be physical. Now we find out it's a heart issue. Now we find out it's a heart issue. That's, that's even more precise, even more telling, even more confining and even more of, of a conflict within our soul. The focus on the family puts out what, what they call a progression towards pornography. The progression of pornography. And here's what they say. First is observation. You glance at it, you look at it, you stare at it, you study it, you think about it. Secondly is compulsion. The thoughts and the desire keeps coming back to you in the magazine or the movie or the computer or the cell phone. Then there's escalation. You look for more and more graphic images. The image that satisfied you yesterday won't satisfy you today. And whatever satisfies you today won't satisfy you tomorrow. It escalates inside of you. 
Then it comes to the phase of acting out. You do something physical about what you've been looking at, what you've been thinking about, what you've been escalating. And then the next step is addiction. Well, you're under the control. You're under the control of the pornography. You keep coming back and you can't quit. And eventually, focus on the family says, is the phase of desensitization. Where you begin feeling just numb. There's nothing that can satisfy you with the images that you see. There's nothing that can satisfy you. If you're married towards your wife or your husband, that won't satisfy you. There's nothing that satisfies you because you've been desensitized to the whole issue. It is certainly uh, a heart issue. It's also an obedience issue. It has to do with obedience to God. Adultery is symbolic of God's people and His relationship to them over the course of time. God uses the, the illustration of adultery in order to talk about how His people have disobeyed Him. In Jeremiah 5 and verse 7, God says, How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me, and they've sworn by those who are not God's. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery. God is saying, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, they had cheated on God by going after things that were not God. Going after money, after idolatry, after pursuit of other things, and turning their back on God. It's an obedience issue. It's also a relationship issue between a husband and a wife. It definitely is a relationship issue. In Genesis, and again in Matthew, and again in Ephesians, we find the same statement given about marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's something about the intimate act of sexuality in marriage that bonds two people together. That's its intended usage. And in marriage, it's a wonderful and a beautiful thing. In 1 Corinthians 6.16, it says this, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute, or the one who commits adultery, becomes one body with her? See, in marriage, the two become one. But in adultery, the two become one. There's more than just the physical, there's also the emotional, and there's also even the spiritual. And it goes on to say, as it is written, the two become one flesh. Adultery brings a third person into a marriage. Physically, emotionally, and even spiritually. Well, it's also a spiritual issue. Adultery is a spiritual issue between the believer and God. In Ephesians 5.32, it talks about husbands and wives and, and, and all the, the outward things about marriage. At the end of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, it says, This mystery is profound. It refers to Christ and the church. There's something about the marriage relationship. God says the marriage relationship is a picture of Jesus and the church. And when you start, oh, if you commit adultery towards your spouse, you're, you're, you're in, in, your, in your body, you're exhibiting a form of idolatry because you're turning away from God and His purpose and His plan. So if you want to avoid moral failure, just stay away from tempting circumstances. Can I get an amen today? Just stay away from it. And also, secondly, notice it by avoiding immorality. When you do that, when you and I avoid immorality, we also avoid the consequences of that sin. And there are consequences to that sin. We'll talk about it today and we'll also talk about it next week as well. When you are determined to avoid moral failure, you're going to avoid the, the crisis. You're going to avoid the product of your actions. Verse 5, the woman conceived. Oh gosh, here we go. Nobody's supposed to get hurt. Nobody's supposed to know. It's supposed to be, you know, uh, you come together, you, you have the act, you go your own way. Nobody's ever going to know. Uh-oh, she's, now she's pregnant. And her husband's not around. He's, where's her husband? He's out fighting the war that David wouldn't go to. 
She sent a message to David, verse 5, I'm pregnant. The product of actions of adultery may well be pregnancy. It may well be disease. It may well be, as many report, a sense of guilt and a driving of a wedge between a husband and a wife. It's not just a simple act that doesn't hurt anybody. So if you determine to avoid moral failure, you're, you're going to avoid the crisis. You're also going to avoid the concealment of having to cover it up. You're going to avoid that. Having to manipulate circumstances and conceal your sin. You're going to avoid having to lie and having to deceive and having to make up a story, having to remember that story, how to deal with that story when it doesn't all add up. You, you, you get to avoid all that. See, David tries to make it look like the child belongs to Uriah. He sends out to the truth, Joab. He says, Joab, send me Uriah. That's not an uncommon thing. Send me Uriah. Let him tell me how the battle's going. So Uriah comes in, and David says, hey, good to see you. How are things going? Great. Go home to your wife. Thinking that if Uriah went home to his wife, then it would, it would look like that he was the father. End of, end of problem. But Uriah, being a man of character, said, I can't go and spend time with my wife and all my comrades are out there battling in the field. So he refused. The next day, David says, well, I'll get him drunk. Then I'll send him home. And then he'll, then he'll spend time with his wife. Got him drunk, but he, he did, wouldn't go back and spend time with his wife. And then David put the cover up. The third thing that happens, you avoid the crisis and the concealment, then you avoid the cover-up as well. The cover-up was this. He wrote a note to Joab, the commander, and he gave it to Uriah to take back to Joab. That's not uncommon either. Send a soldier in. How's it, how's it going? Great. Here's a note back to the general. Send the note there. And David told Joab, the general, he said, all right, when you get into the battle, take Uriah and put him at the very front, then pull the troops back so that Uriah is killed. Uriah carried his own death notice back to the troops. Uriah proved a man of character when summoned by the king. Uriah proved to be the right kind of man. And yet here he is, sent back, carrying his own death notice, not knowing it, and, and he is put up at the front, the troops pull back, Uriah is killed, and Joab sends a note back to David and says, hey, we've suffered some losses, and by the way, Uriah the Hittite got killed. David then responds to, uh, to Joab, verse 25, and says, don't let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Don't, don't worry about the losses. People die in war. It just happened to be Uriah the Hittite that died. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. Verse 27, when the morning was over. Now David, the king, David does the noble thing. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Crisis solved, crisis concealed, crisis covered up. Everything, it got a little, little dirty in there somewhere, but David took care of all of it. End of story. And there are those times in our lives where when we determine that we're going to do something outside of God's purpose and plan, and, and, and it goes a little off kilter because there's something we forgot to think about or some consequence that started to come. So we do all we can to cover it up, all we can to conceal it. And we think now it's all worked out. We can breathe a sigh of relief. Everything's going to be fine. And then we get to verse 27. Disapproval. You'll avoid disapproval if you determine to avoid moral failure. But if you go forward in moral failure, verse 27, but the thing that David had done, 
This thing that David had done, that he had concealed, that he had covered up, everything is, is looking like it's on the up and up. Nobody knows. But this thing that David had done, it says here, it displeased the Lord. It displeased the Lord. How do you get away with things with God? You can fool some of the people all the time. And you can fool all the people some of the time. You know the rest of it, don't you? You can't fool God anytime. God knew. God saw. God observed. God was aware. God was displeased. In the Hebrew language, verse 27 literally says, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. It was not simply a messy little matter. It was not something that would be swept under the rug. There's no explaining this thing away. And so David found himself guilty. But when we determine to avoid moral failure, we don't wind up in these circumstances. And ultimately, you'll avoid the judgment that comes from God. There's a price to pay for sin. Sin brings death. Al just read about that a moment ago. Amber just sang so beautifully about that a few moments ago. Sin brings death. God provides for the forgiveness of sins. Amen? God provides for the forgiveness of sins. Even those who have committed a moral failure. Can I get an amen this morning? There's forgiveness available. But there's also judgment for sin. This judgment is pictured in the daily sin offerings that David was well aware of. The sin offering, the lamb that was sacrificed every morning, every evening, painting the picture that sin brings death and God provides a substitute. But sin brings death. And we know from where we are now that it was completed in Jesus when he died on the cross as we saw so beautifully pictured this morning in the baptisms that we had. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are called to avoid moral failures. It is one way, among others, that sets us apart as the people of God. It is one way, among others, that as we live the life of the gospel, as we live it out in our lives and people observe who we are, what we do, what we don't do, and how our attitude is, when they see how we act, it is to be something that draws people to God. And when we participate in moral failures, we're pushing people away from God as we claim one thing and yet we live another way. One of my favorite is not the right words. One of my favorite songs. I've shared it with you before. I'll share it with you again. It's very appropriate to the circumstances. It's a song by Steve Green called Guard Your Heart. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'm going to share some of the some of the lyrics go like this. What appears to be a harmless glance can turn to romance and homes are divided. Feelings that had, should never have been awaken within Tearing the heart in two. Listen, I beg of you, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Don't trade it for treasure. Don't give it away. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. As a payment for pleasure, it's a high price to pay. For a soul that remains sincere, with a conscience clear, guard your heart. The human heart is easily swayed and often betrayed at the hand of emotion. You dare not leave the outcome to chance. You must choose in advance or live with the agony. Such needless tragedy. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Don't trade it for treasure. Don't give it away. Guard your heart. Guard your heart as a payment for pleasure. It's a high price to pay. 
I say a favorite song. It's not really a favorite, but it's so doggedly true. It is so true. We should all guard our hearts. I know some of you are saying, well, you know, I'm a little advanced in years and, and I'm past that phase of life. And so, you know, these young people, they need to make sure they're guarding their hearts. But let me tell you something. Some of the biggest moral failures occur in those who are older in life. It's not just with the young people. There are two flyers I've had put out in the breezeway. Back in, back in, the, in the wintertime, I was preaching through the Gospel of John and, and I created these, these two little flyers uh, based on some, some articles. One is called Sexual Purity. It's an article by Randy Alcorn. I just created a little flower about it, put it out in the breezeway. I would encourage you to pick this up and read it. Whatever your circumstances, don't say, well, this doesn't really apply to me, so I'm not going to pick one up. No, we have enough copies. Pick one up and read it, and then give it to someone. Give it to a husband. Give it to a wife. Give it to a parent. Give it to a child. The second is called, I like this, Flee, F-L-E-E, A Strategy for Pursuing Sexual Purity. Turn and run, basically. Both of these are out in the breezeway. I would encourage you to pick those up. I want to take just a moment and we're going to conclude in prayer. And as we conclude in prayer today, I, I want to say just a couple of things. One is this is not an especially comfortable topic to talk about in church. I hope you know that. And it's not something I do lightly or flippantly. And it's not something, even though I've tried to put a little bit of humor in there too, it's not something that, that we should handle lightly. It is an it important matter in life. It is an important topic in the world in which we live it is all around us and if we don't take the stand for the gospel and the scriptures then the whole uh, purpose and plan for sexuality from God's perspective will be lost to our culture and our perspective the biblical perspective is not one that we say it's an ugly dirty thing that should not be done but something that is beautiful and sacred that God has created and endorsed within the bounds of marriage. And when we live out those values, it draws people to God. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes if you would, and I'm going to pray. Oftentimes when I speak on this topic with our younger people in a sermon, oftentimes I get response. I'll get an email, I'll get a text. I'll get somebody that calls up and says, hey, can I, can I talk with you or chat with you? Would you pray with me, pray for me? And, uh, and just know that whether it's me or a trusted person here in the church, one of our other staff, pastors, we're available. And if you find yourself being a part of, of, of this moral infidelity or unfaithfulness, whether it's physical or emotional or visual, if you're struggling with pornography, if you're struggling... In, in that area, if, if, you, if you've had an indiscretion, whatever it may be. I, I want to I tell you, first of all, God has standards that we're not to violate. It does displease the Lord. But, but next week we'll talk more about this. But I have to mention it today. That, that, that the most guilty among us are candidates for forgiveness. That comes in Jesus. With forgiveness comes repentance and pulling away from the sin that has taken over, but forgiveness is available through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the good news for us today. Our Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the beautiful gift of sex. I want to thank you for the guidelines that you give us for its use. I pray, Heavenly Father, today that you would convict us of sexual sin that hinders us 
that disrupts our lives, our marriages, and our families, our church, our community. I pray that you convict us of this sin that breaks down lives and help us individually where we are right now and in the days to come even to confess our guilt to you. You already know, Lord. You're not waiting to find out the information. You already know. So may we simply agree with you and admit our guilt to you and may we be joyful to repent. We pray, Lord, you would empower us to overcome the strong allure of sexual sin. It's in our culture, but even more, it's within our own hearts. I pray, Lord, you'd break the cycle that perpetuates this sin among so many. And restore us, Lord, even though guilty, restore us to repentance and forgiveness. Restore us to purity. Heal, I pray, Lord, our marriages. Protect I pray, Lord, those who are single. Guard, I pray, those who are young and those who are old. And help us to keep watch. Help us to protect our testimony. Lead us away from our sinful condition. Help our eyes to stay focused on what they should. Help us to avoid tempting situations and places. May we follow the command, I pray, Lord, of 1 John 1, 9. Knowing that as we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we pray, Lord, that our heart's desire would be to glorify you in sexual purity as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.